following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles this morning, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2. A seasoned preacher told me one time, not long after I had surrendered to preach, he said, if you don't know what to preach, just brag on Jesus. I don't know if that was original with him or if he borrowed it from someone else, but this morning we're going to see Peter do just that in some of the most beautiful, some of the most powerful, powerful verses in the whole New Testament. We're going to look at verse 22 through 25 this morning. If you remember sort of the background of where we're at here. In the previous verses, Peter commanded us to submit to civil authorities, but if you remember, he didn't give us any examples from Scripture really on how to do that. He just gave us the teaching and then he, and then he moved on. But now we're in this discussion about submitting to unjust suffering. And there was absolutely no way that Peter could move on without reminding us of the example of Jesus Christ, our Savior. How could you not bring up Jesus when you're teaching about patiently enduring suffering that you don't deserve? My prayer for you this morning, if you're saved, is that these words will create much more love in your heart for Jesus, more, more awe of what He endured for you and amazement at what he didn't do as well. And I hope that, that all of that will result in a greater commitment to follow him each day of our lives. And if you're here and you're not saved, I'm glad that you're here. And I'm thankful that you will be able to hear about what Jesus Christ did for you. And if you'll repent of your sins and trust him, he will forgive you and He will save you. Amen. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And He has already proved that. So look at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verse 18 through 25. We did that last week as well, but we'll focus on the last few verses today. So verse 18, Peter said, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd, and bishop of your souls. 
This section began in verse 18 where Peter uh, is talking about submission, but he specifically brings up slaves submitting to their masters. But remember, he opens it up pretty quickly to the larger principle of how favorable it is in God's eyes, how gracious God views unjust suffering that's endured patiently. When you do what's right and you're serving God and you patiently and humbly endure that, that's a gracious thing with God. And so in verse 21, Peter then reminded us that Jesus left us an example to follow. Here's, if you want an example of how to handle unjust suffering, look to Jesus and let's trace over his footsteps. Then we come to verse 22. And verse 22 and 23, these verses not only assert Jesus' complete innocence, but they also remind us of how Jesus responded to that unjust suffering that he faced. And that's important because if we're supposed to look to him as our example, then we need to know what he did during these times or know what he didn't do during these times. But first of all, we need to realize that since he was truly sinless, then his sufferings were absolutely unwarranted. And so Peter says in verse 22, who did no sin. That's a very simple statement, but it's very powerful and a very important truth. Jesus Christ did not sin. There was never even one moment in his life where he fell short of God's glory, where he missed the mark of the Father's standard, where he did something wrong, or even when he failed to do something right. Jesus Christ did no sin. And the sinless nature of Jesus is attested throughout the, the New Testament. I'll just bring up a few scriptures that, that you know of probably. But Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 that Jesus appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. And there's other scriptures that I could quote from as well, but maybe the most shocking admission of Jesus' innocence in the New Testament is found in John's Gospel, and it's actually from the, from the mouth of the Roman governor over Judea, Pontius Pilate. And when Jesus is on, is, is on trial in front of this man, on three occasions, Pilate says to the hostile crowd, I find no fault in him. Here in Peter's context, let's not miss the fact that Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. Okay, Peter was in the inner circle. He was an eyewitness. He had a front row seat. He heard things and saw things that others didn't. Okay, you may be able to put a front on sometimes to other people, right? But your real good friends maybe know the truth. Your family knows the truth, okay? Peter, Peter saw behind the curtain, so to speak. And yet Peter can boldly and confidently say, he did no sin. Not even when the crowds were gone. Not even when it was just us. Did Jesus sort of let his guard down, so to speak, and... and 
and relax his standards and relax his morals and his... Never. When Peter recalled the life of Jesus that he knew so intimately and specifically the sufferings of Jesus, he said he didn't sin. Even with his mouth. Notice Peter says, verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. The word guile here has the idea of deceit, treachery, cunning. It's the same word Peter used back in verse 1 of this chapter when he urged us to lay aside all guile. There should never be any deceitful speech uh, in your words, never any deceitful actions in your life. And it should be no surprise to us that Peter brings up Jesus Christ as an example of what it looks like to have no deceit in your mouth. None. The words that Jesus Christ spoke were always honest, always true, always genuine and sincere. There was never any pretense in his speech. Think about this. Not once did Jesus use his amazing teaching ability to trick people. Not once did he use his persuasive power to fool somebody. Even his speech was without deceit. We learn from James that if a man can control his tongue, that's a completely mature man. Because the mouth is sort of a window to the heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you have an evil heart, if your heart is deceitful and selfish and wicked, you're not going to be able to hide that forever. Eventually your speech is going to betray you like an accent. This, this person's not around here. He's not from around here. Well, with Jesus, his pure speech confirmed the purity of his heart. You could scrutinize the words of Jesus all day long. And people did that, didn't they? Constantly testing him and, and scrutinizing everything he said. And yet you could find no deceit. And that's pretty impressive for a man who talked an awful lot to an awful lot of different people. Wow. It's important for us to take a minute and remember Jesus' complete sinlessness. Not only because that was crucial in Him being the perfect sacrifice for sins, that He would be the sinless, blameless, spotless Lamb of God, but also in this context, we're talking about unjust suffering. And so if there were ever a man who suffered wrongfully, who suffered and didn't deserve it, who was mistreated and harmed even though he had done nothing wrong, it was Jesus Christ. And so while this world, though, would back up and say, but if that's truly the case, Brother Matt, then he should fight that. He should fight back. He should get angry. And he should stand up for himself. But Jesus didn't do that. He submitted and notice verse 23, what he did not do. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. The idea of the reviling word here is, is that of evil speech and slander and things like that. Throughout Jesus' life, throughout his ministry, people slandered him. They insulted him. They spoke evil against him. There was one time, I believe, is in John chapter 8, where some crowds 
just revert to name calling and they, they call him a demon possessed Samaritan. About the worst thing a Jew would call somebody else a demon possessed Samaritan. One of Brother Connor's Sunday school lessons recently, we saw that the Pharisees said something so blasphemous against him and against the Holy Spirit. They said, He's doing all his works through the power of Satan. Wow, what slander! And yet, even though there was nothing bad that could ever truly be spoken about him, people were constantly slandering him and insulting him, and yet he never returned evil fire. That shows some patience that I I can't even fathom. It doesn't mean that Jesus never disagreed with anybody or that he never spoke strict, harsh truths, but his purpose was, was to convict, to expose Never to hurt someone, never to cut them down, never to lie about them in order to, to get back at them because they just lied about me. When people spoke evil against Jesus, he didn't speak evil against them in return. And that was especially true during his trials and sufferings and, and crucifixion. All four Gospels record some of the lies and mockery and slander and blasphemous words that that were hurled in Jesus' direction. And yet Jesus never stooped to their level. Matthew and Mark both talk about when Jesus was uh, facing the Jewish trials before he was delivered to Pilate, that, that they were seeking false witnesses to testify against him. Mark says that many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Couldn't get their lies to match up. And when you're trying to condemn the only truly innocent man who's ever lived, it's going to take false witnesses. You can't tell the truth about him and actually find something wrong with him. So we've got to lie about him. So here's more lies, more slander, more evil speech. When Jesus stood before Herod, Luke recorded that Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And Jesus didn't respond to their mockery in kind. And then when Jesus endured the beating that Pilate uh, ordered, John wrote that the Roman soldiers came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Peter had a front row seat to all of that. And he remembered those times when Jesus was slandered and when he was insulted and when he was mocked. And Peter knew that though the harsh words hurled at Jesus did not drag Jesus' speech down to their wicked level. Not once. In fact, during those sufferings, Pilate, the governor of Judea, Pilate got frustrated at Jesus' silence. He had never... He had never judged a man so calm, so unwilling to beg for his life and beg for mercy and plead his case. In John 19, 9 through 11, Pilate said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus' calm demeanor and his silent mouth was so different to Pilate, but it makes us think back to the words of Isaiah 53, doesn't it? 
Isaiah said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so opened he not his mouth. The truly innocent man did not fight slander with more slander. In fact, if you keep reading in verse 23, he didn't even threaten his persecutors. Notice Peter says, when he suffered, he threatened not. While Jesus was enduring unjust suffering, he didn't threaten or bully or try to intimidate his persecutors. Think about this for a minute. Jesus never even said, you guys better get this out of your system because I'm coming back one day and you're going to pay for this. You better have your fun now because it's not going to be very fun for you when I come back again. I'll get even. You'll be sorry. That wasn't even in his heart. In fact, do you remember what Luke said he prayed? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I am utterly amazed at Jesus' heart, at his humble submission to truly unjust suffering. He did nothing but good, nothing but serve the Father, nothing but carry out the divine will, and it led him straight to the cross. And yet he didn't get angry. He didn't fight back. He didn't demand justice or complain about how unfair life is. He submitted. And notice what Peter says at the end of verse 23. But committed himself to him that judges righteously. Your translation may have the word himself italicized, which is just a way for... Uh, a way to indicate that this word is added for English clarity but is not in the original language. And so Peter didn't actually say what Jesus committed to the Father. He left it pretty open-ended. It's just that he kept committing to the Father, to the one who judges righteously. And maybe the fact that Peter left it open-ended is, is important and it's, it's rather large. Listen to what one commentator wrote. He said, scholars debate whether Jesus entrusted himself or his cause or his passion or his enemies. And he says, since the object is unspecified, it would be a mistake to limit the object's sphere. Jesus kept handing over to God every dimension of his life, including the fate of his enemies in particular, he knew that God would judge rightly on the last day, both vindicating him and punishing his enemies if they refused to repent. So verse 23 tells us two things Jesus didn't do and one, and one thing he did. He didn't return the insults of those insulting him. He didn't threaten those who were persecuting him. Instead, what he did do is just kept on handing everything over to the Father just entrusting everything about it all to, to, to our Heavenly Father, the one who judges righteously. And that's really the answer of the question of how could Jesus, how or why could he do this? You know, if you were, if you're Jesus, 
How could you submit so humbly and patiently to what you don't deserve? That's your answer. Is he trusted the Father. He kept handing everything over to the Father. And he knew that the Father will make all things right one day. And that's crucial that we never forget that as well. Always remember that God is the ultimate judge. And one, one benefit of that is that it reminds us of something Peter sort of alluded to multiple times already, is that there's more than just this world. We're, we're foreigners and strangers here, remember? This isn't our home. There's more to come. And that's because God's the ultimate judge, and he's ultimately in control. But also we have to remember that, because if, we, if we're to follow the example of Jesus, how will we ever submit to unjust suffering if we don't have the awareness that God will make all wrongs right one day? If we don't have that in our minds, we're going to want to take matters into our own hands and make it right today instead of have the trust and the patience that God will do it for us and better than we could ever do it one day. So have the awareness, even when you may be suffering for doing good and serving God, it's not falling outside of the realm of God's judgment. He always judges righteously, but sometimes His sentences aren't carried out immediately. Jesus just kept handing things over to God. If we suffer for doing good and we fight back, we shout insults, we try to retaliate, we're simply proving that we don't trust the ultimate judgment of God and we don't trust His Word. And say, no, I, I trust God, Brother Matt. We don't trust Him to do what He said He would do. Because Paul told the Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God promised to repay. It's His right as the Creator and Judge, and He's promised to do so. So why would we want to take matters into our own hands and stoop to the evil level of this world when we know that God will do it one day? Just trust that He'll do it. Trust that He'll keep His word. Be like His Son and just hand it over to Him. Hand it over to God. Christ did that. Even he didn't take matters into his own hands. He gave everything up to the Father, and he patiently endured, and he humbly submitted, and the fate of the human race was forever changed. And in verse 24 and 25, Peter reminds us of the incredible, eternal benefit and result of Jesus' suffering. Look at the first part of verse 24 again. Who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree. Now we're reminded again really of the words Peter used in verse 21 when he said that Christ suffered for us. He suffered for you. I want you to think about this. The closest connection exists between your sin and Jesus is suffering. He suffered on your behalf as your substitute because of your sins because he had none of his own. Peter's already said that. He took on himself sins that were not his. 
He submitted to punishment that he did not deserve. The horrible process of a crucifixion. And that reminds us again of Isaiah 53 where Isaiah said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sinless Son of God picked up and carried your sins to the cross. Why would He do that? Well, He loves you. And He knew that His suffering and His life and His death would rescue us from sin and give us life. Earlier, Peter said it this way, that that we should praise God who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And now he says it a little differently. Look at the end of verse 24. He says that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness. Some modern translations use the word might here, that we might die to sins or something, something like that. And that's, that's fine, just don't misunderstand the word might. Peter isn't giving doubt or uncertainty that, well, you might or might not be dead to sin. Flip a coin. That's not what Peter's saying. But he's showing the result or the purpose of Jesus' death. The purpose of Jesus dying for you and suffering on your behalf was to separate those who believe in him from their sin. You've been pulled away from sin. Freed from the bondage of sin, from its consequences. That connection between you and sin has been severed by the death of Jesus Christ. I love the imagery that I read one author use here. He said, we should be like a corpse as far as temptations to sin are concerned. And I love that imagery because a dead body is not tempted to do much of anything. Christians have been separated from their sins. We have died to our sins, and so they should have no power over us, no pull, no temptation. We've been delivered out of darkness. We've been turned in another direction, and that's what Peter says here at the end, uh, that we should live unto righteousness. So yes, we've been forgiven of our sins, but we've also been empowered to live for God. To live after his righteousness, to show that in our lives. And Peter has mentioned that multiple times already. He's, he's urged us to live holy, to have good, honest lifestyles, to have good works that people see so that, so that they hopefully turn to Christ like we did. And now he's saying that again here as, as we should live under righteousness. Our salvation is not just a spiritual thing but it should practically change every day of our lives and how we live. And if we understand what Jesus did for us, it just motivates us to, to do that and be more committed. Peter reminds us again at the end of verse 24, by whose stripes ye were healed. Some translate stripes as wounds. And this reminds us not only of the cross, but probably maybe more so of the, of the beatings that Jesus endured beforehand and those stripes 
that would have lacerated his back as he endured the worst beating the Roman soldiers could give a, a crucifixion victim. Another allusion to Isaiah 53, right? With his stripes, we are healed. Doesn't that seem strange, though? Because a wound is an injury. Something that needs healing. And yet it's the wounds of Jesus Christ that bring spiritual healing to us. I love what one man said. He said, a new and strange method of healing. The doctor suffered the cost and the sick received the healing. It's awesome. And so in verse 25, Peter closed this section with this overall reminder of why we needed healing in the first place and what it's done for us now. Look at verse 25. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of yourselves. The idea of sheep, here's another allusion to Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And I hate to tell you, but this isn't a very flattering picture. Sometimes we, maybe we tend to think of, of sheep as being these cute little fluffy animals. You know, aw, look at that sheep. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but the illustration here is not that you're cute or fluffy. We're compared to sheep because, as one man said, sheep are notoriously dull, prone to stray, and helpless to find their way back. So that's not very flattering. No, it's not. But that's me. And that's you. We are prone to wander away from God. We are prone to sin, prone to stray like a sheep that's, that's not smart enough to stay where he needs to stay. And he wanders off in the wilderness and he doesn't even know how to find his way back. He's just completely lost. And unless the shepherd comes looking for him, what hope does he have? Luckily for us, maybe luck's not the right way to say it. Thankfully for us, the good shepherd came and gave his life for us. And so Peter says, but are now returned into the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Before you trusted Christ, you were a sheep continuously lost, wandering in the wilderness. But when you repented and gave him your trust, there was a turnaround and you are now under forever the care of the good shepherd and the good bishop. And those terms are pretty closely related. They're different, but the idea of a shepherd, just like a shepherd and his sheep, Christ knows you intimately. He loves you. He cares for you. He provides for you. And ultimately, he gave his life for you. John talked about that. And Jesus said the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. That's how much he loves you. He gave his life for you. As, as a bishop, or you may have the word overseer, he watches over you, he guides you, he directs you, he protects you. Peter mentions their soul here, the, the shepherd and bishop of our soul. The word soul can sometimes just be used to describe the whole of you, your whole person, and that fits here. Christ is the shepherd and bishop of, of everything about you of your whole being. But if you wanted to press the idea here of, of a soul being more inward and spiritual, like sometimes we think of the word soul, 
then even our physical lives, even though they may be tough, even though we may suffer unjustly, even though we may endure some pain, and things may not go our way in this life, your soul is untouchable. Either way you look at it, the Christ that died for you will never abandon you. Ever. And that's the example the example of Christ that you and I should follow when we suffer for doing right. It's the example of the Son of God who didn't, who didn't speak harshly in return, who didn't threaten when he suffered. He just, he just believed that God would make it right one day. He trusted in his heavenly Father, kept handing things over to the just judge. If we're living for the Lord, don't be surprised when unjust suffering comes your way. But instead of fighting back and being angry and retaliating and doing all the things the world would expect, look to Jesus, trace his steps, and submit the way he did. We better be thankful that he submitted. But even though Jesus is our example, we're not Jesus. His suffering did something that ours can never do. We should hope and pray that, that when we suffer, we suffer like Jesus. We should look to his example and have that, that humble, submissive spirit. And we should want others to see that and, and see God's grace in that. And that, that be a good witness for them. And so that they hopefully will be convicted and, and turn to Christ like we did through our sufferings. So what we want is that our sufferings show God's grace, but Christ's sufferings brought God's grace. Jesus' suffering brought healing to sinners. Now, ours doesn't do that. But maybe our suffering can point them to the one who did. But it doesn't end with suffering, does it? You remember back in chapter 1? Peter talked about how suffering was God's plan all along to lead to glory. God will make the unjust treatment of his son right one day. Whether you like it or not, or whether you accept him as your savior in this life or not, you will bow one day to the lordship of Jesus Christ. When he returns in all of his splendor and all of his glory. And I pray that if you've never trusted him, let today be the day that you repent and give him your life. Let Jesus Christ become the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. He will never let you down. He will never disappoint, never forsake. And when he comes again, It'll be glorious for you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the reminder that we see here in First in Peter of what our Lord did for us. Help us, Lord, as best as our finite hearts and minds can grasp the sacrifice that that Jesus made for us. Work in our hearts with your spirit to give us the same 
humble, submissive attitude that he had. Use that, Lord, to show your grace to others. Help us to be witnesses for you. And thank you for everything that Jesus did for us, Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We pray you were encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.